You know, the Bible says, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. You see what I'm saying? He could swear by no greater. So he swear by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. So after he had patiently endured, after Abraham had, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of strife. In other words, a man gives his word, and he swears on something greater than himself that can hold himself accountable, and that settles it for men. When we go into a court of law, they'll, uh, very often, they don't do it very often anymore, but used to they'd have you put your hand on a Bible and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And the Bible says in verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 6, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability. That's a big $10 word. It means the unchangeableness, uh, the undefeatableness. It means the uh, unconquerableness, the immutability of His counsel. What did He do? He confirmed it by an oath. He said, blessing, I will bless thee. He didn't say, I promise to bless you because so-and-so will keep me accountable because can't nobody keep God accountable. So instead, he just said, I'm telling you, I'm going to bless you, and that's enough because his word is enough. It says that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. In other words, by God's nature, Brother Ken, and by God's word. It was impossible for God to lie by his nature. So when he makes a promise, we have something. It says that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whither the forerunner is for us, entered even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Can I encourage you a little bit this morning? You've already been encouraged, but I'm going to encourage you a little bit. I like what Miss Robin was singing, talking about that ship being battered. Anybody feel like your ship is battered lately? You feel like your physical frame, you feel like your life and the stability of it is being tossed to and fro? Feel like your get up and go is get up and gone? Your sails feel torn and, and tattered? I'm glad to tell you that there is an anchor that tethers us. It is fixed within the rock. Amen. Uh, there is an anchor between our soul and the very throne of the God of glory. It is fixed to the footstool of the throne of Jesus Christ. If you're going to move us, you're going to have to move Him. Praise the Lord. Our ship may grow battered, my friend, but it's not our ship that's anchored. It's our soul that is anchored. Your body may give way, but listen, there's more to you than just your body. Somebody say amen to that. I'm glad there is an anchor this morning. Praise the Lord. That must have been what the Holy Ghost wanted us to say because we sang about it twice. Amen. And uh, so we're just going to testify about it. All right, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4 this morning. What a good spirit we've already felt this morning. And the reason I believe is because it's the Spirit of God ministering amongst us. And I appreciate the Lord and His presence and His goodness and grace. What a blessing it is to be with you. If you're a visitor uh, here this morning, this is just what we do. Amen. And uh, I trust that you feel right at home in the Lord's house. And uh, that's how we want you to feel. Matthew chapter number 4 this morning. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. This is a familiar uh, passage or story in the Word of God. You may be more familiar with it out of the book of Luke, a parallel account. And we'll reference that this morning. But we're going to take our text from Matthew chapter 4. Uh, verse number 1. The Word of God says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. When he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hunger. When the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, 
command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city. Luke tells us that's Jerusalem, lest we wonder. Taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. And saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil take them up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth them all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And Luke tells us he showed them to him in a moment of time. And says that he saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. I'm thankful that, Lord, and before we ever showed up, you showed up. God, you've been speaking to hearts already this morning. You've been ministering to us. Lord, I just pray that we not do anything that would dishonor you, that we not do anything that would disparage you or cause you to feel unwelcome in this house, for it is your house, Lord. I just pray that you'd help us to honor you in all that we do. Now, Lord, the work that you've begun, I trust you'll continue. And I pray that it would extend, Lord, not just to the hearts that you've touched, but that everyone under the sound of my voice would hear the Word of God this morning, would heed the Word of God this morning, would be helped by the Word of God this morning. For I know that your Word is able if we'll only yield to it. I pray that, Lord, if there's any lost and undone, they'd not leave this place ere they have bowed their heart and head before you and asked Christ to forgive them. Uh, Lord, they may have come in a child of hell. They may have come in a lost individual. They may have come in alienated, an enemy of Christ. I'm thankful they can leave reconciled. They can leave born again. Uh, They can leave a child of God. They can leave a part of the family of God this morning. They'll only bow their, their heart before you and receive Christ. I pray they do that before it's everlasting too late. Lord, I do love you. And I ask you to do all. I'm not asking them to do these things, Lord. I'm asking you to do them. And I trust you to accomplish them. I ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. For the past couple of Sunday mornings that we've preached, we have been following a theme through the Word of God. And if the Lord allows it this morning, this will be the final message in following this thought. Uh, We have examined throughout Scripture the words of Satan. Now, it's interesting to me, if we study our Bibles, even a casual reading of the Word of God will present to us a few facts about Satan. Uh, We note that Satan is real. He is not a figment of the imagination. He is not the embodiment of an ideal that has been birthed from the collective consciousness of society. He is a real person. He is a personality. He is an individual. I don't know that we could attribute, in fact, I know we couldn't attribute him the word human, Uh, But he certainly is an individual. He is not just, as we said, an embodiment of the idea of wrongdoing or immorality. But he is an individual with a personality, with a will, with a plan, with a design, with, with, uh, with agency. And he desires to affect your life and mine. And we could also say that Satan is the chief antagonist of Scripture. He is the one that stands astride and opposed to the work of God seeking to thwart what God wants to do in His own creation. And when we study Satan in Scripture, the thing that has fascinated me for the past couple weeks, 
You would think in all the Word of God, 66 books of the Bible, uh, you would think him being the chief antagonist, you'd hear from him quite a bit. But in fact, when you study the Word of God, you'll only find really three occasions upon which Satan spoke descriptively and at length. Uh, We find that he spoke in the Garden of Eden. And there he spoke to man. In fact, we could say more specifically, he spoke to woman. He spoke to Eve and he tempted her. And uh, we find that he spoke at the moment of mankind's sin in order to deceive them. The reason he spoke as the serpent in the garden was to deceive Eve and to cause her to sin. The second occasion is found in the book of Job. We preached on it last week. And Satan in the book of Job is not speaking to Job. In fact, we have no record that he ever spoke anything to Job. But rather, there is a conversation that transpires in heaven. And Satan speaks to God. But he does speak about Job. Or more appropriately, God's the one talking about Job. Satan didn't want to talk about Job, but God made him talk about Job. I love the fact that whenever Satan boasts to God that he's going to and fro in the earth, he's walking up and down in it. In other words, Brother Ken, he's saying, I'm doing anything I want in this world. Nobody can tell me what to do. I'm running things. Uh, God could have said a hundred things to him to answer that. God could have said, well, I could destroy you right now. And that would have been true. Uh, God could have said, your time is short. And that would have been true. Uh, God could have said, hey, listen, I've got a chain in a bottomless pit with your name on it. And then when you get out of there, I've got a chain in a lake of fire with your name on it. And that would have been true. God could have said, one of these days, I'm going to defeat you at Calvary. That would have been true. God could have said, I'm going to save many of these that you have in bondage. That would have been true. But that's not what God says. Instead, He says, hast thou considered my servant Job? What was God saying there? And I know this in my message this morning, but I just can't help it. This is stuck with me. I, I love the fact that he said, you think you're running everybody, but what about Job? Here's a man living for God. Here's a man that's perfect and upright and escheweth evil. Here's a man that loves me. And that got the devil mad, man. He flew back at God. He said, does Job serve God for not? He just starts, I mean, I'm talking about almost like two fighters uh, at, a, at, a, at a press conference. He starts just barking at God. Uh, Job only serves you because of this or because of You know what upsets the devil more than anything? Steadfastness. Somebody just go on and serve God and do right even when nobody's paying attention, even when nobody's applauding for Him, even when it doesn't seem to be advancing them. That's what got the devil all tore up. So the devil spoke at the moment of man's steadfastness. And he spoke to disparage him. He said, Job only serves you because it serves him. But we find in our text this morning the third and final occasion. Now I'll go ahead and grant to you, uh, Satan makes a couple statements when he ascends to try to uh, knock God off of the throne and tries to usurp God's place of authority. Uh, but it's only very, very few. And maybe that'd be a worthwhile, undoubtedly it would be, study about Satan's personality and his designs. But the third and final time in Scripture that we'll consider is found here in Matthew chapter 4 and also Luke chapter 4, a parallel account. Uh, The first time Satan spoke, he spoke to man. The second time, he spoke to God. The first time, he spoke at the moment of man's sin to deceive him. The second time, he spoke at the moment of man's steadfastness to disparage him. But here we find an unusual thing that takes place because he does not just speak to man and he does not just speak to God, but rather he speaks to the God-man. He speaks to God in the flesh, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. He speaks to Jesus Christ. It is at a time of separation in the Lord's life, and we'll say a word about that in a moment. But the reason that Satan speaks is to distract him. So that tells me something. If I just take a comprehensive look, 
tells me that when I have an opportunity to sin, the devil's going to speak and try to get me to sin. Tells me when I decide to take a stand and live for God in a wicked world, the devil is going to speak and try to slander me and destroy me. And it tells me that when I make up my mind to draw nigh unto God and to separate myself unto Him and to spend time in sweet fellowship with the Lord, that the devil's going to speak to try to distract me from my walk with the Lord. Now when the devil speaks, he does not speak a bold, blatant, open lie that is obvious. We're told in the book of John that he is the father of lies. Uh, that he was a murderer from the beginning. He abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. In John 8.44, and when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. The only thing the devil knows how to do is lie. Every time he speaks to you, he's lying. Uh, listen, if the devil starts whispering in your ear, I'm not saying that is not alarming, and I don't mean in an auditory way, uh, but I mean if the devil starts uh, oppressing you and tempting you and, and fighting against you as you live for the Lord, uh, there is a sense in which that is very disturbing, but in another way that's very encouraging, because now you know what the truth is. The truth is the opposite of whatever he's telling you. Amen? Uh, so uh, the devil only knows to speak a lie, but when he speaks a lie, he doesn't speak a bold, open, obvious lie. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that it was the subtlety of the serpent uh, that beguiled Eve. He is not obvious, he is subtle. And in fact, when he appears, he has the ability to appear as an angel of light. In other words, when he speaks lies to you, they're going to sound like the truth. And only the Word of God can separate the wheat and the chaff. Only the Word of God can direct and guide us. Can I give you a little bit of pastoral insight? Uh, we occasionally will say a word about some false belief system, some false cult, and there are plenty of them in the world today, uh, political and cultural and otherwise, or all sorts of, of, uh, of cults and, and reprobate ideologies. But we don't, Brother Kent, I don't anyways. I don't spend a lot of time focusing on it. I don't know that I've ever done a, a series debunking the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, and it's not because there are not dangerous ideologies. Uh, but it is for this simple reason. You know, the best way to guard against the counterfeit is to learn real, real carefully the real article. And I found that the truth of the Word of God, when it is preached and believed and received, will safeguard and vouchsafe the soul against these various false ideologies. In other words, how do we discern the, uh, the devil as an angel of light from the true uh, work and Word of God? We do it by getting to know the true thing, the real thing. That's how you spot a counterfeit is you, you study the real thing. And so we spend time doing that. But we find that whenever Satan speaks on these occasions, there is always, this is his M.O., there is a grain or kernel of truth that he then wraps in a lie and delivers. And most of the time that lie is, is not a lie of admission, it is a lie of omission. In other words, most of the time what he says is not necessarily what is the lie. It's what he neglects to say. You listen to me this morning? This goes on rampantly in our world. Uh, people sometimes, listen, when you take a stand for the truth and when you take a stand for the doctrine of the Word of God, sometimes people beat up on you and they'll look at a movement or a preacher or an ideology and they'll say, well, tell me what's wrong with that person. And sometimes it is a struggle to do it because... It ain't what they do that's a problem. It's what they refuse to say and refuse to stand upon and refuse to proclaim and refuse to disclose. Hey, listen, every heretic that's ever lived, I could agree with about some things. But it's what do they neglect. And the devil works in this way. It's often not what he says, it's what he neglects 
to say, listen, whenever you're watching a, a preacher on television, or on the radio, or on the internet, I'm not against any of those mediums, but anytime you're watching them, you want to get an idea. Notice what they will go a mile out of their way to not say. And you'll get an idea about what they believe. So in each of these instances, we could say this. There is a half-truth. We're going to call that the truth in the lie. That's the kernel of truth. That's what we could agree with. And then there is the hidden truth. We can call that the lie in the truth. How is it that he is twisting the truth and what is he not telling us? And then in closing, we'll look at the whole truth. Because I want, I want the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Amen. I want to know what the Word of God teaches and says. First, let me say that in our passage here, the Lord Jesus is in a unique position. For He is God in the flesh. In fact, this passage is in many ways, I think, symbolic of His whole ministry. Because here He is, He is God in the flesh. He has the ability and the authority to will or wish or demand or proclaim Satan out of existence by His very Word. But that is not what Jesus does. Instead, Jesus meets Satan on the same plane that mankind must meet Him on. And He battles him spiritually using and wielding only the sword of the Word of God. When Satan approaches unto Him, he is approaching unto Jesus as the perfect example of what God desires man to be. And I'm not saying Jesus is not the Son of God or God in the flesh here. Of course He is. But I'm saying He also is representative of what God always wanted man to be when God created him in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is here representative of man as God desires man to be. Man at the zenith of His existence. He is full of and led by the Holy Ghost. He is in perfect communion with the Creator he is focused entirely on his relationship with God and he is separated away from the world and to the Father. He's been 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying and spending time with the Father. He's full of the Holy Ghost, we're told. He's led of the Holy Ghost, we're told. He is exactly what God wants man to be. And it is in this situation that Satan approaches to draw Christ's focus, obedience, and dependence Away from the Father. Can I just summarize that real quick? Some of you saying, I wish you would, preacher. Can I just summarize that and say this? Don't think when you make up your mind to serve God that all of a sudden all your problems go away. In some ways, when you commit to serve the Lord, some of your problems are just getting started. Now, I'm not implying it's not a blissful and amazing life serving the Lord. It is. And, and, and the only faults in my life are that I don't serve Him more. I should serve Him more. I should be more committed to Him. But I'm just telling you, when you make up your mind to serve the Lord, the devil's going to show up and paint a big old bullseye on your back and try to destroy you and distract you and derail you from serving God. And that's exactly what he does here. He shows up at this moment to try to get Jesus to take his eyes off of the Father. And how does He do that? He makes three statements in our passage. And let's consider first off the half-truth of these statements or the truth in the lie of these statements. Because I'll be honest with you, all three of the statements that Satan makes, I fundamentally agree with. In fact, we've said that for each of the three sermons we've preached. Every statement that Satan is recorded as making in Scripture basically I fundamentally agree with. There is a kernel of truth within it. For instance, the first thing he says is he approaches the Lord Jesus. The Bible says in verse 3, When the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. This was a truth. It was a half-truth. 
and we'll reveal what hidden truth was there. But let me say that I basically agree with what he's saying. He's saying, you know, Jesus, if you're really who you say you are, if you are the Son of God, that means you have the power to transform this stone into bread. He first tells a half-truth about the Creator's mastery. So what do you mean, preacher? The control that Jesus had over all things. Can I say to you, listen, it's true that as the Creator, Christ has the power over all matters. Later on in the Gospels, we read of Him walking upon water. We read of Him calming the raging sea. We read of Him taking bread and taking fish and breaking it in unlimited bounty to meet the need of those that were following Him. We read of Him commanding water that it be turned into wine. I mean, we are not without examples in Scripture that uh, Jesus is in charge of creation. That shouldn't surprise us. Listen to what the book of Colossians says. It says, for by Him, speaking of Jesus, for by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him, and this is important, by Him all things consist. The book of Hebrews tells us that by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. In other words, how did God create this world? He could have done it any number of ways. But he chose to speak. He said, let there be. Well, who was it that spoke? The book of Colossians reveals to us that it was the second person of the Godhead that issued forth that command. So in fact, it was the very Word of Christ that brought all matter into existence. Beyond that, it is the integrity of His Word that all things consist by, Brother Ken. Why do the planets hold to their courses? Now, the scientists could say, well, there's gravitational pull and uh, there's uh, various reasons, but what makes gravity work? What makes it all function? There must be an original cause and there is always an original question. Uh, Who thought it up? Who dreamed it up? Where is the source of intelligence and information and knowledge? It must have come from somewhere. It didn't congeal out of a puddle sometime billions of years ago. Uh, Because where did the knowledge come to congeal out of the puddle? There is always the question of original cause, but not to the Bible believer. We know exactly who the original cause is. Not what the original cause is, but who the original cause is. People say, well, preacher, the Big Bang caused it. Well, what caused the Big Bang to go bang? I'm saying even even the most ranked militant atheist evolutionist uh, cannot answer the question beyond what was before there was nothing. Cannot answer that. Science is silent on it because silence is incapable of answering that. We must look somewhere else for an answer to that. We can find it in the Word of God. It was Jesus Christ that spoke creation into existence. What holds the planets in their courses? What holds the stars in their courses? What makes up, up and down, down? Uh, What makes gravity function? What makes the laws of thermodynamics exist and stay true and keep their integrity? It is because the Word of the immutable God set it in motion. And it's impossible for God to lie. This world, by the way, listen, this world's going to keep doing what it's been doing until God tells it to do otherwise. Uh, Listen, whenever uh, man came off the ark, uh, God gave the promise to Noah, said that uh, seed time and sowing and reaping and harvest would continue until the world ended. Uh, Listen, I think we ought to be a good steward. I heard a preacher say one time, I believe in conservation. Conservation is you catch a fish and you ain't going to eat it, you throw it back. Amen? I don't think we ought to be abusers of God's creation, but by the same token, I do believe we are the masters of God's creation. I believe He put us here to have creation in dominion underneath us. Let me tell you something, it's God's creation. It's going to exist until God says otherwise. Preacher, what about global warming? I believe in it. I do. The book of uh, 1 Peter tells us that one of these days, the elements will melt with fervent heat. 
Brother Charlie, but it's not going to come from your SUV or my air conditioner. It's going to come from God's distinct express command. And I'm just merely telling you this morning, He is the Creator, and He could have turned those stones into bread. Now, we're going to preach a little bit on what He said and how He replied, but can I just interject a little word of encouragement? What need could He not meet for us? He can turn the stones into bread. In fact, He could have made those stones cry out and praise unto Him. He could have of those stones raised up children unto Abraham. What could He not do for you and for me? So i, I got to say, I, I agree with the devil here. If, if thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. In other words, you got the power to do it. And I believe He did and does have the power to do it. And then there was a second statement the devil makes. The Bible says in verse 5, Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written. Now we've heard Jesus say it is written. Now the devil says it is written. He shall give his angels charge concerning thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Here the devil himself quotes the Word of God. Satan quoted a messianic psalm prophesying the angelic protection of the Messiah from Psalms chapter number 91. And this was, of course, a true statement. It was a direct and accurate quote of the inspired, inerrant Word of God. Listen, Satan here is quoting Scripture more accurately than your average TV preacher does. He's quoting it explicitly, accurately. On several occasions, we are told that the angels ministered to Jesus. I could read many of them. In fact, this passage closes with an angel coming and ministering to Jesus. We're told in the Garden of Gethsemane, after the Lord had prayed that an angel came and ministered unto Him. And the book of Hebrews tells us that this was a common occurrence throughout the ministry of the Lord Jesus. It says in Hebrews 1, verse 6, And again, when He bringeth in the first begotten into the world, He saith, And let all the angels of God worship Him. And of the angels He saith, Who maketh His angels spirits and His ministers a flame of fire. In other words, uh, the Hebrews writer says that all throughout the earthly life of the Lord Jesus, there were angels attending to His spiritual needs, strengthening Him. And the quote that Satan gives from the book of Psalms, it's the Word of God. I agree with it. A hundred percent. If He had jumped off that temple pinnacle, the angels would have borne Him up. He could have called 10,000 angels at any time. i got to say I agree with what Satan says here. By the way, you know there's other places. Uh, that passage in the book of Hebrews goes on to say that God uses His uh, angels, His ministry, in ministering unto the needs of His people as well. I'm thankful, listen, that God is watching over us and ministering to us and caring for our needs. And i got to say, if Satan walked up to me and said and quoted the Word of God, I'd have to agree with him because it's the Word of God. So I, basically, I agree with him. He, he made a statement about the care of the Messiah, and we find it to be true throughout the Word of God. And then he makes a third statement. In verse number 8, the Bible says again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain. We don't know what mountain. Some commentators believe it was not an earthly or tangible or physical mountain of this realm, but uh, rather that he merely whisked him away to a different uh, place of thought and of vision. We don't know, but the Bible says that the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Now, we have to take the devil's word at face value here, which I do not normally advise. But the book of Luke gives us a little more insight. There was a little more to the conversation. Listen how Luke records it for us. In Luke chapter 4, verse 5, it says, The devil taking him up into an high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world 
in a moment of time. Now what that means is in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, Paul later uses that terminology, saying in a moment he showed him everything. everything. Throughout all of human history, past, present, and future, showed him all the power, all the glory. In other words, Satan was showing uh, Jesus just exactly what he could do for him. The Bible says this, the devil said unto him, all this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Can I tell you something? I believe fundamentally speaking that there is a truth that he is speaking. Satan showed Christ every earthly kingdom throughout human history at one time in an instant. He then proclaimed that he has the authority to grant that glory and power to whomsoever he desires. Is that true? I believe that it is. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Speaking of Satan, the Bible calls him the God of this world. I believe he does have power, raw power, effectual power to give to men thrones and kingdoms. And we find this comes to great fruition throughout the tribulation period when there's going to be a man of sin, satanically led and energized, that's going to be placed upon the throne of all of the Western Hemisphere. In other words, I agree with Satan. He has the power to put men upon earthly thrones and earthly kingdoms. Everything he said to Jesus here, there is a kernel of truth that is un. Deniable. But can I tell you something? There's more to it. Can I tell you, anytime the devil speaks, there's always more to it. There's more to it here. We find there is a hidden truth in each of these statements. If the, if the uh, half-truth is the truth in the lie, Brother Charlie, the hidden truth is the lie in the truth. In other words, what's he not telling us? Well, I thought about this passage. and Satan's desire is to deceive the Lord Jesus Christ. And each of these statements is tailored to deceive Christ. But we're not told that by Satan. He does not come to Jesus and say, hey, I'm here to deceive you. I'm here to derail you. I'm here to destroy you. Uh, Rather, when he comes to him, he speaks these statements with forked tongue, uh, with silver words to try to draw Christ and his allegiance away from the Father. So in what ways was he seeking to deceive Christ? Well, think about the first statement with me. He says, if thou be the Son of God, command these stones that they be made into bread. Have you ever really thought carefully about that statement? Have you ever thought carefully about why Satan would make such a statement? You know, Satan knew already that Christ could transform the stones into bread. This was not his first run-in with the Son of God. He knew who Jesus was. He knew that He was the Creator. He knew that He was God in the flesh. So Satan didn't encourage him to do this so he could prove that he could. For Satan already knew that he could. By the same token, did he do this because he thought, uh, though Christ already could, did he think that he would do such a thing? Did he really believe that Jesus would jump to, would perform parlor tricks for Satan's amusement. I mean, surely he knew the Son of God better than to think that just because Satan showed up like a schoolyard bully and said, if you are who you say you are, turn these stones uh, to be made bread. I mean, surely, I'm just saying, if he's so subtle, surely he knew that dog went, huh? So why then did he say it? Here's my opinion. You take it for whatever you value it at. I think the first statement was spoken for the purpose of humiliation. I think that he spoke this 
to humiliate Christ. Imagine that God, the God of all glory, the almighty, thrice holy God of creation that sits on the circle of the earth. I'm talking about the original cause. I'm talking about the original soul. I'm talking about the God that will outlast all of the nations and kingdoms. I'm talking about God this morning. Imagine that God would be weak. Imagine that He'd be hungry. Imagine that He would be in need. Here's what I think Satan was saying. I don't think he was saying, I, I, Christ, I don't believe you can turn those stones into bread. I think him and Jesus both knew better. I don't think he was saying, I believe you will turn these stones in, into bread. I think him and Jesus both knew that that wasn't going to happen. Here's what I think he was saying. I think he was saying, hey, if you really are who you say you are, why are you suffering the way you're suffering? Is it such a good idea what you've done, Jesus? Here you are, God. I mean, all, listen, all of heaven stands to attention when you walk in the room. Here you are in the middle of a desert, weak and hungry and tired. And what is it all for? Can I say that oftentimes in your life and mine, one of Satan's first strategies will be to try to humiliate us in our service to the Lord. He was trying to get Christ to second guess the incarnation. And how often has Satan come to you or I in our darkest moments, in our lowest places, and said something like this, you know, this serving God ain't working out good for you after all, is it? How often has he come to us in the midst of our trouble and sorrow and said, if God really loved you the way he says he loves you, you wouldn't be going through what you're going through. Imagine that you, someone that knows and loves God, would have to suffer the way that you're suffering. What's he doing? He's trying to humiliate us. I believe the first statement was given for the purpose of of humiliating. And then notice the second statement with me. Uh, Whenever he takes uh, the uh, Jesus up to a pinnacle of the temple, he quotes a passage of Scripture. We've already read it, but we'll read it again. Uh, The Bible says in verse 6 of our text, he saith unto him, if thou be the Son of God, Cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give His angels charge concerning thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why would Satan quote the Word of God? I've been told uh, by uh, by prosperity preachers uh, that the devil will run if I quote the Word of God. Here's the devil quoting the Word of God. I've been I've been told that that he's so petrified of the Word of God that if I if I put a picture up in my house, he won't come in my house because there's a picture of the Word. But here, he's quoting the Word of God. Why would he quote the Word of God? How could there be anything deceptive, you listening, about quoting Scripture? How could there be anything deceptive about quoting Scripture? Can I tell you the reason why? It was deceptive for Charlie because it lacked context. You know that passage that he's quoting in Psalms 91, uh, it ain't just about David, it's about Jesus. In fact, I'd say it's more about Jesus than it is about David. So how do you know that, preacher? Well, I find this to be a truism of life. It don't matter if you're saved or lost. It don't matter if you're a Sunday school teacher or reprobate. Uh, You jump off of a high place and hit a hard surface, your life is done. That's just a true... Don't go out and figure it out by experience. Let my experience stand or my word of wisdom stand. You go out, jump off a 30-story building, the angels are not going to bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. God didn't make that promise to everybody. God made that promise to Jesus. 
The reason for that is because Jesus was not appointed to die at the foot of a pinnacle of the temple. He was appointed to die on a rugged cross for your sins and mine. So what is Satan trying to do? He's saying, you know, uh, you're going to go through all this suffering and all this heartache. Men are still going to deny you, Jesus. But if you would come up on this pinnacle of the temple and jump off, how could the Pharisees deny that you're the Messiah when the angels angelically, uh, miraculously bear you up? How could the scoffers, how could the skeptics deny that you are who you are when in front of hundreds and thousands of people, the angels of God swoop from heaven and bear you up and protect you? See, the second statement was made in provocation. He was trying to provoke Christ to abandon the will of the Father and to prematurely reveal Himself as the Son of God. In other words, the devil will come along and the first thing, this ain't by accident, he'll say, well, you know, you really shouldn't have to go through what you're going through. It's unfair that God would do you the way He's doing you. Why are other people that don't serve God like you do, why aren't they going through? Why aren't they? Why don't they have sickness? Why don't they have family turmoil? Why don't they have depression? Why don't they have sorrow? Why don't they have all these problems? It's really not fair that God's doing you the way He's doing you. Then He'll come in after it. He'll say this, you know, you don't have to do what God says anyway. You don't have to wait on Him to be your deliverer. Why don't you go ahead and take matters into your own hands? Why don't you lift yourself up by your own bootstrap? Why don't you go ahead and just take care of this matter yourself? And He tries to provoke us into disobeying the Lord. Then I see there's a third statement. In the third statement, we read not only Matthew's account, but Luke's account. And in Luke's account, it says this, The devil taking him up into a high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. It's interesting that Satan does not here question Christ's divinity. On the first two occasions, he says, If thou be the Son of God. But he has jettisoned that that a strategy, and instead he just merely comes to him and offers him a shortcut, shortcut to glory that avoids the cross. Christ wouldn't have to die, but merely declare his allegiance to Satan, and he would be given a crown. See, I think it's all the way to the third statement before we really get to what we might even call a temptation. The first statement is spoken for humiliation. The second for provocation. The third statement, though, is, is spoken for temptation. And he says, there's no reason for you to have to go to a cross and die. There's no reason for you to have to suffer. There's no reason for you to have to be reviled by men. God's putting you through that just because He desires to see your heartache and your pain and He's selfish and He's petty. But you can take matters into your own hands. In fact, here's a good way to do it. Just bow down before me and all these kingdoms I'll give to you. You don't have to have a cross to get a crown. You know, very often in your life and mine, the devil will very slyly present an opportunity to walk in disobedience to God right after He's been working on us, man. Right after He's been working on us. I'm talking about making us feel bad for suffering, for, for going through what we're going through. Making us feel like God don't love us and He ain't taking care of making it, Making us feel like there ain't no reason for us to have to go through what we're going through. And then He'll show up and say, oh, and by the way, here's a solution for you. Eerie, man. I mean, you think, listen, you think it's eerie when you're sitting around uh, talking about buying fishing line and then uh, next thing you know, you pull up your phone and Amazon done heard you talking about it. That ain't nothing compared to what the devil will do. <laughs> I mean, he knows, he knows what tempts us. And he approaches to Jesus and it is not, listen, I don't think it was the, I don't think it was power, I don't think it was popularity, I don't think it was prosperity. 
that he felt would appeal to the Son of God. I think it was Jesus' loathing of the cross. And the Bible does tell us that he endured the cross despising the shame. He found something that Jesus hated. He said, I'll give you a way out of it. I'll give you a way to avoid it. He spoke it in temptation. He was not sincere when he said, I will give this to you. So I find there is a hidden truth. And then finally in closing, can I just, I just, before we're done, I just want us to look at the whole truth. It's not good enough just to look at the half truth. It's not good enough just to examine the hidden truth. I want us to look at the whole truth. And you know, we find the whole truth in the way Jesus answered it. Isn't that always the case? You want to know the whole truth? Go to the Word of God. You'll find the whole truth. And so the way Jesus answers him reveals something of the truth to us. It reveals the totality of the truth. Now, think about the first one with me. He approached him. He says, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones that they be made bread. Satan had charged Christ with abasing and humiliating himself through the incarnation. He was saying that it was humiliating for God to hunger. And that's true. It was humiliating for God to hunger. That God would condescend to the level that He had. But can I tell you something? Listen, it's true that Christ had humbled Himself. In fact, He had condescended much further than Satan even gave Him credit for. I mean, Satan says, boy, look how low you've come. You're out here hungry and won't even command these stones to be made bread. But can I tell you something? He went a lot lower than even that. He went a lot deeper than even that. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. You get that? In the form of God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Did you get that? Equal with God. But made Himself of no reputation and took upon Him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Whenever Satan says, look how you have humiliated yourself, Jesus didn't say, well, I'm not humiliated. Because of course He was. He didn't come back and say, well, I have not not lost any of my luster or my glory. I have not lost any of the majesty. Because of course He had. He was robed in flesh. So how did He answer? He says, man, 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 brother Charlie, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. See, the question wasn't, had he humiliated himself? The question was not, had he condescended? The question was not, had he abased himself? Of course he had. And he would abase himself even further before he was exalted after the resurrection. The question was not, had he? The question was, why had he died? And you know what his answer is? His answer is this. It's true that it's not fitting for God to have to hunt him. It's true that it's not right for God to have to be weary and weak. It's true that it's disconsonant with every law of reality, every law of creation, every law of the universe, that God should be weak and weary and hungry and in need. You're right, it's not normal. Here's why I've done it, Satan, because man shall not live by bread alone. He's saying... God could. God could live without bread. God don't need nothing to be God. But you see, these these poor, ruined men that are my creation, that I love, that I care for, that I created, these have to learn how to stand on level foot and combat you. They have to learn what it is to suffer and to lean on God, to depend upon Him. And He was saying this, I shouldn't have to go through this 
but I'm choosing to go through this because create uh, my creation that I love, that I care for, that I'm willing to die for has to go through this. So yes, it's true that God should not, but man does. So you know what happened? <laughs> you know what happened? God became man. The Son of God became the Son of Man. That sons of men might become the Son of God. He endured. He suffered. The Hebrews writer says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself likewise took part of the same, that through death He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily He took not on Him the nature of angels, but He took upon Him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that He Himself hath suffered being tempted, He is able to succor them that are tempted. Satan says, why are you doing what you're doing? Jesus says, because man has to go through this and one day I'll sit at the right hand of the Father and intercede for them and make a way for them. And I'll empathize with them and I'll feel for them and I'll be touched with the feelings of their infirmities. I'm doing something, Satan, far beyond turning stones into bread. I'm turning sinners into the beloved. I'm changing the lives of men. I'm empathizing and suffering in their place. They have to suffer, so I'm going to suffer in their place that they might be redeemed. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So there is a truth about his compassionate condescension. Then in the second statement that Satan makes, and I must hasten, he quotes Psalms 91. Takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. If you're the Son of God, cast yourself off of here and prove to everyone you're who you say you are. You don't have to go to the cross to prove it. You go ahead and throw yourself off of here and prove to everyone that you are who you say you are because the angels will fly from the glories of heaven that they might catch you before one toenail hits one of those stones. Satan quoted Psalms 91 to provoke Christ to deviate from God's plan. The Father has you on a plan, but you don't have to do His plan. Go ahead and do my plan. Christ issues Satan a warning. Matthew 4, 7, Jesus said unto him, it is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Isn't that an interesting statement? It seems a little out of place, if I'm being honest with Charlie. I mean, at first you don't really know what that even means. I mean, he says, uh, the angels will come and bear you up and you won't have to be hurt. He says, don't tempt the Lord thy God. What is he talking about? By this statement, Christ reminds Satan about what the rest of the passage that he had quoted says. Remember, this is all about the plan and course of God. Deviate from God's course and go your own way. Let these angels bear you up because the course of God holds only sorrow and suffering for you. It holds only a cross. It holds only the bearing of of all the sins of humanity. Abandon God's plan and do your own thing. Christ replies, uh, Satan, why don't you go ahead and read the rest of that psalm? Can I read it to you? Psalms 91 verse 11 says this, For he shall give his angels charge over thee, keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. That's what Satan liked. But he stopped where he stopped. You remember what I said? It's not what he does say, it's what he won't say. He stopped where he stopped on purpose. You know what the very next verse says about Jesus? It says that about Jesus, Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. 
the plan of God did involve suffering and humiliation for Christ. He would go to the cross. His foot would be bruised. However, Christ would be resurrected and exalted. Satan would be condemned and defeated by the cross. Satan said, reveal yourself as the Son of God. Prove to the world that you're the Messiah. And Christ replied, you better be careful what you wish for. You want to start quoting Scripture on me, I'll go ahead and quote something back to you. It's true I'm going to suffer. It's true it's going to be painful. It's true it's going to be heart-rendering. It's true it's going to be devastating. But on the third day, I'm going to get up in power and glory. And the power that you have wielded, the scepter you have held, the crown you have worn will be forever shattered. I'll trample you underfoot. In other words, you want to quote Scripture, we'll go ahead and quote Scripture. And just don't stop short and remember that the plan of God did include suffering for Jesus but it also included exaltation for Jesus. It's true that on the day that Jesus died, undoubtedly the hosts of hell vaunted themselves against Him. Uh, But on the third day, they were not laughing. On the third day, they were not rejoicing. On the third day, they were not exalting themselves against Him. For God uh, woke up on the third day and broke the chains of death and hell. He gives a truth about His conquering course. And then there's a final one. Just notice it very quickly. Whenever he takes him up to that high mountain, the Bible says that he he showed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he says to him, I'll give you all these things. You'll just bow down and worship me. These are all mine. They all belong to me. I'm not asking you to go to a cross. I'm not asking you to bow beneath the cross. I'm just asking you to bow to my feet. And I'll give you every crown you could ever want. Satan offered Christ a crown for his allegiance. Here's the problem. There were two problems. The first is that it is a fake crown. The authority that the devil gives is not real authority. Satan is a pretender to the throne. His authority, though widespread in its scope and recognition, though the world allows him to rule, his authority is illegitimate. You know what happens Whenever someone, a strong man, walks into an environment and almost like a vacuum just sucks up all the allegiance and loyalty in a, in a room and begins to govern and reign in Banana Republic style, you know what happens? Sooner or later, the real authority shows up. And when that happens, all the legitimacy that they may have pretended to is shattered and withers away. That's what's going to happen to the devil. You remember how Jesus answered him? Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan... For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. He said, Go ahead, Jesus, and do your own thing. Take a shortcut. I'll give you everything you can dream of. I'll give you a crown. You won't have to go to the cross, Jesus says. The problem is it's a crown made of tin. It's not real. There's nothing to it. It is a fake crown. You can give it to me, but one day God's going to take it from you. And I think that really is the second problem. It was not only a fake crown, but because it was a fake crown, it was a fleeting crown. It's interesting. Satan could show Christ all the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time. I love that's the way that the Bible describes it. And I understand, I believe anyways, what it means. It's saying that he didn't see them in chronological course. He didn't sit there supernaturally and miraculously watching thousands of years unfold before him. But rather, in a moment of time, in some way, he, he grasped the magnitude of all the power that Satan could muster. I also think it's interesting the way the Bible says that in a moment of time. You know why? Because a moment of time, or I would say the moment of time, is as long as Satan holds on to those crowns. 
You see, uh, the kingdom of Christ is eternal and invincible. Satan holds the scepter for now, but it's only for now. He holds the scepter for time, but there's coming a time when time will be done away with. (laughs) I love what the book of Revelation says. I'm going to read this and be done. Uh, Revelation chapter 11. He said, Preacher, the devil can give me things that God doesn't want to give me. Probably that's true. Preacher, the devil let me do things God won't let me do. Probably that's true. Can I ask you a question? For how long? How long until your life falls to pieces? How long until the consequences of sin come crashing in? Because i got news for you. He's not going to sit on the throne forever. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded. And there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world, the kin, that's all those kingdoms that Satan had just showed him, the kingdoms of this world, all of the, the cumulative political power of all mankind throughout all history, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. The devil said, I'll give you a crown. He said, it ain't your crown to give. He said, I'll give you a crown. The Lord said, for how long could you even give me a crown? The devil said, I'll give you a crown. He said, that's my crown anyway. One day I'm going to wear it. One day the kingdoms of this world are going to become my kingdoms. And I'll go that way by way of the will of the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed. He said, Lord, this is what I desire. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not thy will, but my will. Not my will, but thy will be done. I'm glad to tell you this morning, listen, the devil's going to whisper all kinds of things in your ear. He's a liar from the beginning. Can I tell you something? If you'll just go ahead and yield to the Lord, serve Him, go ahead and keep living for Him, He'll give you the strength and grace, and your life will be more blessed for it. Let's bow together. As musician comes to play, the altar is open this morning, and I just invite you, if God spoke to your heart, to come and find a place at this altar and to speak with the Lord and to deal with Him. He wouldn't have spoken to you for no reason, I don't believe. Everything He does, He does with providential, perfect purpose. So if He spoke to your heart, He must have something that He wants to talk to you about. So won't you come find a place at this altar and meet with Him this morning. Father, I love you, and I thank you for your precious Word. I pray that you use it in the hearts and lives of your people over these next few moments. We ask it in Jesus' name.